Philosophy of Style, Part 1, Section 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Philosophy of Style by Herbert Spencer, Part 1. Causes of Force in Language which depend upon economy of the mental energies. Section 1. Division 1. Paragraph 1. Commenting on the seeming incongruity between his father's argumentative powers and his ignorance of formal logic, Tristan Shanty says, It was a matter of just wonder with my worthy tutor and two or three fellows of that learned society, that a man who knew not so much as the names of his tools should be able to work after that fashion with them. Stern's intended implication, that a knowledge of the principles of reasoning neither makes nor is essential to a good reasoner, is doubtless true. Thus, too, is it with grammar. As Mr. Latham, condemning the usual school drill in Lindy Murray, rightly remarks, gross vulgarity is a fault to be prevented, but the proper prevention is to be got from habit, not rules. Similarly, there can be little question that good composition is far less dependent upon acquaintance with its laws than upon practice and natural aptitude. A clear head, a quick imagination, and a sensitive ear will go far toward making all rhetorical precepts needless. He who daily hears and reads well-framed sentences will naturally more or less tend to use similar ones, and where there exists any mental idiosyncrasy, whether there is a deficient verbal memory, or an inadequate sense of logical dependence, or but little perception of order, or a lack of constructive ingenuity, no amount of instruction will remedy the defect. Nevertheless, some practical result may be expected from a familiarity with the principles of style. The endeavor to conform to laws may tell, though slowly, and, if in no other way, yet, as facilitating revision, a knowledge of the thing to be achieved, a clear idea of what constitutes a beauty, and what a blemish, cannot fail to be of service. Paragraph 2. No general theory of expression seems yet to have been enunciated. The maxims contained in works on composition and rhetoric are presented in an unorganized form. Standing as isolated dogmas, as empirical generalizations, they are neither so clearly apprehended, nor so much respected, as they would be were they deduced from some simple first principle. We are told that brevity is the soul of wit. We hear styles condemned as verbose or involved. Blair says that every needless part of a sentence interrupts the description and clogs the image, and again that long sentences fatigue the reader's attention. It is remarked by Lord Kames that, to give the utmost force to a period, it ought, if possible, to be closed with that word which makes the greatest figure. That parenthesis should be avoided, and that Saxon words should be used in preference to those of Latin origin, are established precepts. But, however influential the truths thus dogmatically embodied, 
they would be much more influential if reduced to something like scientific ordination. In this, as in other cases, conviction will be greatly strengthened when we understand the why, and we may be sure that a comprehension of the general principle from which the rules of composition result will not only bring them home to us with greater force, but will discover to us other rules of like origin. Paragraph 3. On seeking for some clue to the law underlying these current maxims, we may see shadowed forth in many of them the importance of economizing the reader's or hearer's attention, to so present ideas that they may be apprehended with the least possible mental effort, is the desidratum toward which most of the rules above quoted point. When we condemn writing that is wordy, or confused, or intricate, when we praise this style as easy, and blame that as fatiguing, we consciously or unconsciously assume this desidratum as our standard of judgment, regarding language as an apparatus of symbols for the conveyance of thought, we may say that, as in a mechanical apparatus, the more simple and the better arranged its parts, the greater will be the effect produced. In either case, whatever force is absorbed by the machine is deduced from the result. A reader or listener has at each moment but a limited amount of mental power available. To recognize and interpret the symbols presented to him, requires part of his power to arrange and combine the images suggested, requires a further part, and only that part which remains can be used for realizing the thought conveyed. Hence, the more time and attention it takes to receive and understand each sentence, the less time and attention can be given to the contained idea, and the less vividly will that idea be conceived. Paragraph 4 how truly language must be regarded as a hindrance to thought, though the necessary instrument of it. We shall clearly perceive on remembering the comparative force with which simple ideas were communicated by signs. To say, leave the room, is less expressive than to point to the door. Placing a finger on the lips is more forcible than whispering, do not speak. A beck of the hand is better than come here. No phrase can convey the idea of surprise so vividly as opening the eyes and raising the eyebrows. A shrug of the shoulders would lose much by translation into words. Again, it may be remarked that when oral language is employed, the strongest effects are produced by interjections, which condense entire sentences into syllables. And in other cases, where custom allows us to express thoughts by single words, as in, beware hi-ho, fudge. Much force would be lost by expanding them into scientific propositions. Hence, carrying out the metaphor that language is the vehicle of thought, there seems reason to think that in all cases the friction and inertia of the vehicle deduct from its efficiency, and that in composition the chief, if not the sole thing to be done, is to reduce this friction and inertia to the smallest possible amount. Let us then inquire whether economy of the recipient's attention is not the secret of effect alike in the right choice and collocation of words, in the best arrangement of clauses in a sentence, 
in the proper order of its principal and subordinate propositions, in the judicious use of simile, metaphor, and other figures of speech, and even in the rhythmical sequence of syllables. Division 2. Economy in the Use of Words. Paragraph 5. The greater forcibleness of Saxon English, or rather non-Latin English, first claims our attention. The several special reasons assignable for this may all be reduced to the general reason, economy. The most important of them is early association. A child's vocabulary is almost wholly Saxon. He says, I have, not, I possess. I wish, not, I desire. He does not reflect, he thinks. He does not beg for amusement, but for play. He calls things nice or nasty, not pleasant or disagreeable. The synonyms which he learns in after years never become so closely or organically connected with the ideas signified as do these original words used in childhood. And hence, the association remains less strong. But in what does a strong association between a word and an idea differ from a weak one? simply in the greater ease and rapidity of the suggestive action. It can be nothing else. Both of two words, if they be strictly synonymous, eventually call up the same image. The expression, it is acid, must in the end give rise to the same thought as, it is sour. But because the term acid was learnt later in life, and has not been so often followed by the thought symbolized, it does not so readily arouse that thought as the term sour. If we remember how slowly and with what labor the appropriate ideas follow unfamiliar words in another language, and how increasing familiarity with such words brings greater rapidity and ease of comprehension, and if we consider that the same process must have gone on with the words of our mother tongue from childhood upwards, we shall clearly see that the easiest learnt and oftenest used words will, other things equal, call up images with less loss of time and energy than their later learnt synonyms. Paragraph 6. The further superiority possessed by Saxon English in its comparative brevity obviously comes under the same generalization. If it be an advantage to express an idea in the smallest number of words, then will it be an advantage to express it in the smallest number of syllables. If circuitous phrases and needless expletives distract the attention and diminish the strength of the impression produced, then do surplus articulations do so. A certain effort, though commonly an unappreciated one, must be required to recognize every vowel and consonant. If, as all know, it is tiresome to listen to an indistinct speaker or read a badly written manuscript, and if, as we cannot doubt, the fatigue is a cumulative result of the attention needed to catch successive syllables, it follows that attention is in such cases absorbed by each syllable. And if this be true, when the syllables are different of recognition, it will also be true, though in a less degree, when the recognition of them is easy. Hence the shortness of Saxon words becomes a reason for their greater force. One qualification, however, must not be overlooked. A word which in itself embodies the most important part of the idea to be conveyed, especially when that idea is an emotional one, 
may often with advantage be a polysyllabic word. Thus, it seems more forcible to say it is magnificent than it is grand. The word vast is not so powerful a one as stupendous. Calling a thing nasty is not so effective as calling it disgusting. Paragraph 7. There seems to be several causes for this exceptional superiority of certain long words. We may ascribe it partly to the fact that a voluminous mouth-filling epithet is by its very size suggestive of largeness or strength. Witness the immense propensity of sesquidillian verbiage, and when great power or intensity has to be suggested, this association of ideas adds to the effect. A further cause may be that a word of several syllables admits of more emphatic articulation, and as emphatic articulation is a sign of emotion, the unusual impressiveness of the thing named is implied by it. Yet another cause is that a long word, of which the latter syllables are generally inferred as soon as the first are spoken, allows the hearer's consciousness a longer time to dwell upon the quality predicated and where, as in the above case, it is to this predicated quality that the entire attention is called, an advantage results from keeping it before the mind for an appreciable time. The reasons which we have given for preferring short words evidently do not hold here, for that to make our generalization quite correct, we must say that while in certain sentences expressing strong feelings the word which more especially implies that feeling may often, with advantage, be a many-syllabled or Latin one. In the immense majority of cases, each word serving but as a step to the idea embodied by the whole sentence should, if possible, be a one-syllabled or Saxon one. Paragraph 8. Once more, that frequent cause of strength in Saxon and other primitive words, their imitative character may be similarly resolved into the more general cause, both those directly imitative as splash, bang, whiz, roar, etc., and those analogically imitative as cough, smooth, keen, blunt, thin, hard, crag, etc., having a greater or less likeness to the things symbolized, and by making on the senses impressions allied to the ideas to be called up, they save part of the effort indeed to call up such ideas, and leave more attention to the ideas themselves. Paragraph 9. The economy of the recipient's mental energy, into which are thus resolved the several causes of the strength of Saxon English, may equally be traced in the superiority of specific over generic words. That concrete terms produce more vivid impressions than abstract ones, and should, when possible, be used instead, is a thorough maxim of composition. As Dr. Campbell says, the more general the terms are, the picture is the fainter. The more special they are, tis the brighter. We should avoid such a sentence as, in proposition as the manners, customs, and amusements of a nation are cruel and barbarous, the regulations of their penal code will be severe. And in place of it we should write, in proposition as men delight in battles, bullfights, and combats of gladiators, will they punish by hanging, burning, and the rack. Paragraph 10. 
This superiority of specific expressions is clearly due to a saving of the effort required to translate words into thoughts, as we do not think in generals, but in particulars, as whenever any class of things is referred to, we represent it to ourselves by calling to mind individual members of it. It follows that when an abstract word is used, the bearer or reader has to choose from his stock of images, one or more, by which he may figure to himself the genus mentioned. In doing this, some delay must arise, some force be expended, and if, by employing a specific term, an appropriate image can be at once suggested, an economy is achieved, and a more vivid impression produced. Division 3. The Principle of Economy Applied to Sentences. Paragraph 11. Turning now from the choice of words to their sequence, we shall find the same general principle hold good. We have, a priori, reasons for believing that, in every sentence, there is some one order of words more effective than any other, and that this order is the one which presents the elements of the proposition in the succession in which they may be most readily put together. As in a narrative, the events should be stated in such sequence that the mind may not have to go backwards and forwards in order to rightly connect them. As in a group of sentences, the arrangement should be such, and that of them may be understood as it comes, without waiting for subsequent ones. So in every sentence, the sequence of words should be that which suggests the constituents of the thought in the order most convenient for the building up of that thought. Duly to enforce this truth, and to prepare the way for applications of it, we must briefly inquire into the mental act by which the meaning of a series of words is apprehended. Paragraph 12. We cannot more simply do this than by considering the proper collocation of the substantive and adjective. Is it better to place the adjective before the substantive, or the substantive before the adjective? Ought we to say, with the French, un cheval noir, or to say as we do, a black horse? Probably most persons of culture would decide that one order is as good as the other. Alive to the basis produced by habit, they should ascribe to it the preference they feel for our own form of expression. They would expect those educated in the use of the opposite form to have an equal preference for that. And thus they would conclude that neither of these instinctive judgments is of any worth. There is, however, a philosophical ground for deciding in favor of the English custom. If a horse black be the arrangement, immediately on the utterance of the word horse, there arises, or tends to arise, in the mind, a picture answering to that word. And as there has been nothing to indicate what kind of horse any image of a horse suggests itself, very likely, however, the image will be that of a brown horse, brown horses being the most familiar. The result is that when the word black is added, a check is given to the process of thought. Either the picture of a brown horse already present to the imagination has to be suppressed, and the picture of a black one summoned in its place, or else, if the picture of a brown horse be yet unformed, the tendency to form it has to be stopped. Whichever is the case, a certain amount of hindrance results. But if, on the other hand, a black horse be the expression used, no such mistake can be made, the word black indicating an abstract quality 
arouses no definite idea. It simply prepares the mind for conceiving some object of that color, and the attention is kept suspended until that object is known. If then, by the presence of the adjective, the idea is conveyed without liability to error, whereas the precedence of the substantive is apt to produce a misconception, it follows that the one gives the mind less trouble than the other, and is therefore more forcible. Paragraph 13. Possibly it will be objected that the adjective and substantive come so close together that practically they may be considered as uttered in the same moment, and that on hearing the phrase, a horse black, there is not time to imagine a wrongly colored horse before the word black follows to prevent it. It must be owed that it is not easy to decide by introspection whether this is or not, but there are facts collaterally implying that it is not. Our ability to anticipate the words yet unspoken is one of them. If the ideas of the hearer kept considerably behind the expression of the seeker, as the objection assumes, he could hardly foresee the end of the sentence by the time it was half delivered. Yet this constantly happens. Were the supposition true, the mind, instead of anticipating, would be continually falling more and more in arrear. If the meanings of the words are not realized as fast as the words are uttered, then the loss of time over each word must entail such an accumulation of delays as to leave the hearer entirely behind. But whether the force of these replies be or be not admitted, it will scarcely be denied that the right formulation of a picture will be facilitated by presenting its elements in the order in which they are wanted, even though the mind should do nothing until it has received them all. Paragraph 14. What is here said respecting the succession of the adjective and substantive is obviously applicable, by change of terms, to the adverb and verb, and without further explanation it will be manifest that in the use of prepositions and other particles most languages spontaneously conform with more or less completeness to this law. Paragraph 15. On applying a like analysis to the larger divisions of a sentence, we find not only that the same principle holds good, but that the advantage of respecting it becomes marked. In the arrangement of predicate and subject, for example, we are at once shown that the predicate determines the aspect under which the subject is to be conceived. It should be placed first, and the striking effect produced by so placing it becomes comprehensible. Take the oft-quoted contrast between Great is Diana of the Ephesians and Diana of the Ephesians is great. When the first arrangement is used, the utterance of the word great arouses those vague associations of an impressive nature with which it has been habitually connected. The imagination is prepared to clothe with high attributes whatever follows, and when the words Diana of the Ephesians are heard, all the appropriate imagery which can on that instant be summoned is used in the formulation of the picture, the mind being thus led directly, and without error, to the intended impression. When, on the contrary, the reverse order is followed, the idea, Diana of the Ephesians, is conceived with no special reference to greatness, and when the words, is great, are added, the conception has to be remodeled, whence arises a loss of mental energy and a corresponding diminution of effect. 
The following verse from Coleridge's Ancient Mariner, though somewhat irregular in structure, will illustrate the same truth. Alone, alone, all, all alone, alone on a wide, wide sea, and never a saint took pity on my soul in agony. Paragraph 16. Of course, the principle equally applies when the predicate is a verb or a participle, and as effect is gained by placing first all words indicating the quality, conduct, or condition of the subject, it follows that the copula also should have precedent. It is true that the general habit of our language resists this arrangement of predicate, copula, and subject, but we may readily find instances of the additional force gained by conforming to it. Thus, in a line from Julius Caesar, he burst his mighty heart. Priority is given to the word embodying both predicate and copula. In a passage contained in The Battle of Flodden Field, the like order is systematically employed with great effect. The border slogan rent the sky, a home, a Gordon, was the cry. Loud were the clanging blows, advanced, forced back, now low, now high. The pennon sunk and rose, and bends the bark's mast in the gale. Where rent our rigging, shrouds and sail, it wavers mid the foes. Paragraph 17. Pursuing the principle yet further, it is obvious that for producing the greater effect, not only should the main divisions of a sentence observe this sequence, but the subdivisions of these should be similarly arranged. In nearly all cases, the predicate is accompanied by some limit or qualification, called its complement. Commonly, also, the circumstances of the subject, which form its complement, have to be specified, and as these qualifications and circumstances must determine the mode in which the acts and things they belong to are conceived, precedent should be given to them. Lord Kimes notices the fact that this order is preferable, though without giving the reason. He says, when a circumstance is placed at the beginning of the period, or near the beginning, the transition from it to the principal subject is agreeable. It is like ascending or going upward. A sentence arranged in illustration of this will be desirable. Here is one. Whatever it may be in theory, it is clear that in practice the French idea of liberty is the right of every man to be master of the rest. Paragraph 18. In this case, where the first two clauses up to the word I practice, inclusive which qualify the subject to be placed at the end instead of the beginning, much of the force would be lost, and thus the French idea of liberty is the right of every man to be master of the rest, in practice at least, if not in theory. Paragraph 19. Similarly, with respect to the conditions under which any fact is predicated, observe in the following example the effect of putting them last. How immense would be the stimulus to progress were the honor now given to wealth and title given exclusively to high achievements and intrinsic worth. Paragraph 20. And then observe the superior effect of putting them first. Were the honor now given to wealth and title given exclusively to high achievements and intrinsic worth, how immense would be the stimulus to progress. The effect of giving priority to the complement of the predicate 
as well as the predicate itself, is finely displayed in the opening of Hyperion. Deep in the shady sadness of a vale, far sunken from the healthy breath of morn, far from the fiery noon and eve's one star, sat gray-haired Saturn, quiet as a stone. Here it will be observed not only that the predicate sat precedes the subject Saturn, and that the three lines in italics constitute the complement of the predicate come before it, but that in the structure of the complement also the same order is followed, each line being so arranged that the qualifying words are placed before the words suggesting concrete images. Paragraph 22. The right succession of the principal and subordinate propositions in a sentence manifestly depends on the same law. Regard for economy of the recipient's attention, which, as we find, determines the best order for the subject, copula, predicate, and their complements, dictates that the subordinate proposition shall precede the principal one when the sentence includes two, containing, as the subordinate proposition does, some qualifying or explanatory idea, its priority prevents misconception of the principal one, and therefore saves the mental effort needed to correct such misconception. This will be seen in the annexed example. The secrecy once maintained in respect to the parliamentary debates is still thought needful in diplomacy, and in virtue of this secret diplomacy, England may any day be unawares betrayed by its ministers into a war costing a hundred thousand lives and hundreds of millions of treasure. Yet the English pique themselves on being a self-governed people. The two subordinate propositions ending with the semicolon and colon respectively, almost wholly determine the meaning of the principal proposition with which it concludes, and the effect would be lost were they placed last instead of first. Paragraph 23. The general principle of right arrangement in sentences, which we have traced in its application to the leading divisions of them, equally determines the proper order of their minor divisions. In any sentence, of any complexity, the complement to the subject contains several clauses, and that to the predicate several others, and these may be arranged in greater or less conformity to the law of easy apprehension. Of course, with these, as with the larger members, the succession would be from the least specific to the more specific, from the abstract to the concrete. Paragraph 24 now however we must notice a further condition to be fulfilled in the proper construction of a sentence but still a condition dictated by the same general principle with the other the condition namely that the words and expressions most nearly related in thought shall be brought the closest together eventually the single words the minor clauses and the leading divisions of every proposition severally qualify each other the longer the time that elapses between the mention of any qualifying member and the member qualified, the longer must the mind be exerted in carrying forward the qualifying member ready for use, and the more numerous the qualifications to be simultaneously remembered and rightly applied, the greater will be the mental power expended and the smaller the effort produced. Hence, other things equal, 
force will be gained by so arranging the members of a sentence that these suspensions shall at any moment be the fewest in number and shall also be of the shortest duration the following is an instance of defective combination a modern newspaper statement though probably true would be laughed at if quoted in a book as testimony but the letter of a court gossip is thought good historical evidence if written some centuries ago a rearrangement of this in accordance with the principle indicated above will be found to increase the effect thus though probably true a modern newspaper statement quoted in a book as testimony would be laughed at but the letter of a court gossip if written some centuries ago is thought good historical evidence paragraph twenty five by making this change some of the suspensions are avoided and others shortened while there is less liability to produce premature conceptions the passage quoted below from paradise lost affords a fine instance of a sentence well arranged alike in the priority of the subordinate members in the avoidance of long and numerous suspensions and in the correspondence between the order of the clauses and the sequence of the phenomenon described which by the way is a further prerequisite to easy comprehension and therefore to effect as when a prowling wolf whom hunger drives to seek new haunt for prey watching where shepherds pen their flocks at eye in hurtled coats amid the field secure leaps o'er the fence with ease into the fold or as a thief bent to unhoard the cash of some rich burgher whose substantial doors cross-barred and bolted fast fear no assault in at the window climbs or air the tiles so clomb his first grand thief into god's fold so since into his church lewd hirelings climb paragraph twenty six the habitual use of sentences in which all or most of the descriptive and limiting elements precede those described and limited gives rise to what is called an inverted style a title which is however by no means confused to its structure but is often used where the order of the words is simply unusual a more appropriate title would be the direct style as contrasted with the other or indirect style the peculiarity of the one being that it conveys each thought into the mind step by step with little liability to error and the other that it gets the right thought conceived by a series of approximations paragraph twenty seven the superiority of the direct over the indirect form of sentence implied by the several conclusions that have been drawn must not however be affirmed without reservation though up to a certain point it is well for the qualifying clauses of a period to precede those qualified yet as carried forward each qualifying clause costs some mental effort it follows that when the number of them and the time they are carried become great we reach a limit beyond which more is lost than is gained other things equal the arrangement should be such that no concrete image shall be suggested until the materials out of which it is to be made have been presented and yet as lately pointed out other things equal the fewer the materials to be held at once and the shorter the distance they have to be borne the better hence in some cases it becomes a question whether most mental effort 
will be entailed by the many and long suspensions or by the correction of successive misconceptions. End of part one, section one.